Hello and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So today, I'm really excited about the topics I'm covering. I'm actually talking about Ashkenazi herbalism and Lilith. And yes, since it uh, was Passover this weekend, um, at the time of recording, uh, I thought it might be interesting to look at the mystical branch of Judaism in a segment on Jewish mysticism and the, is this a dirty word, the Kabbalah. Yeah, I mean, Madonna tried her best to make it one. Uh, I, I'm really excited about this though. I feel like obviously with both of our lineages, there's very like a Germanic Celtic slant to the magic mm -hmm. that we cover. Um, and of course we are not like trying to say we're authorities on this at all, but it's really interesting. And we thought it would be nice to like, take a look at other magical traditions, especially because it's like Passover and we'll get into like the super relevance of Ashkenazi and like the Ashkenazim and their whole lineage in a minute. Um, but before that, Nick, when did you feel most magical this week? Oh, well, so I will say that the, the wildflower bloom is in full, full, full swing. And I was on one of my night walks recently and I was just in this spot and it was like all these wildflowers and there was just like the most gentle breeze. And I was like, I'm Howl from Howl's Moving Castle right now. Like, oh my God, which daddy. Absolutely daddy, absolutely daddy. It's, <laughs> it's inappropriate for a children's movie. Every time I watch it, I'm just like, why am I so horny for this <laughs> anime character? Oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, like literally, just like, you know, like anything where there's like a, like wildflowers and a breeze, it's like, I am, I am Howl from Howl's Moving Castle right now. So that was it. That I was the moment. I love that. Well, for me, it was actually yesterday. So I sent Nick this picture, but um, my colleagues at work sent me the most amazing like condolence gift ever. Um, it, there's this shop in LA that you can actually order stuff from online. It's called House of Intuition. And it's like, it's this really great, like very LA magic shop, but I do love it. And they sent me the healing kit that included like a healing candle with like um, some like smoke cleansing bundles and like incense and charcoal discs and this really beautiful like anointing oil. And um, my favorite thing probably actually like the sleeper hit in this is like a body scrub that was like infused like with the magic of rose quartz. And then mm. it's like neroli and sandalwood and coconut oil with the sea salt. Um, so yesterday I went full in because I was on the verge of going to the museum to do a donor meeting and then just had like a meltdown panic attack and realized that I'm like not ready for that yet. So I took a bath and like lit the healing candle and did all the smoke cleansing and did the body scrub and then did like a candle meditation and a body oil afterwards. And it was just really nice. Like things have been, I'm going through the healing and grieving process that is like very difficult already, but I feel like I'd been so disconnected from my magical practice for the last few weeks. And this was really, like, first of all, just the most like thoughtful gift from people that work with me, which was I felt so seen and understood in a way that 
was very healing to my to my soul <laughs> um but it was also just like really being able to lean into that magic and i'm actually like the healing candle is lit right now and these are candles it, i have to ask is that the same healing candle that you got me when redacted broke up with me it is i actually have right here in my hot little hands hold on because those are uh, my bag stones and I have my bag. Oh yeah, so when you when you get to the bottom of these, Nick's about to show you, there's crystals in all of the candles and they're like different crystals that they choose by intuition. So that's my little my little piece of agate here. My little, my little agate here. Oh yeah, so pretty. And then this little, little piece of rose quartz here, which oh. we love, we love her. We do. And, and these are the these are the little stones that came out of my candle. Um so yeah, no, I just I thought I I thought since they were right here at hand, that yeah. it might be. So I I love I love this shop. You can totally buy them online. Like this is not sponsored, although House of Intuition come through. I spend <laughs> a lot of money at y'all shop. They're actually where I've gotten like a few tarot decks and stuff too. Um, but it's like the healing candle has, I think it's lavender essential oil. Um, they do it with sustainably sourced palm wax. So it's like actually better for the environment. And they're like, they're just beautiful. Like they're huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they have them for all sorts of different stuff. And then they also do like kits for each like Zodiac season, which is kind of cool if you're into that sort of thing. So anyway, they do have houseofintuitionla.com is the website if y'all want to go like, this is not sponsored again, like we're not getting any money from I, this. It does, I just it, love it. It, it. it is leaning uh, sort of into an ad. Uh, right. but it, no, but no, but no, I did, I did love, um, I did love when you sent me that candle and it actually, it, it smelled really good. Um, and I do, I do carry those stones with me pretty much everywhere. So, yeah. And I like using the, like these tall candle containers. I always use them for like dried flowers. Once they're done, I like clean them out and they're like perfect little containers for dried flowers because they're really tall. So yeah. it can keep the stem stable. Anyway, so that's our like ad not ad for House of Intuition in LA. Um, but so let's jump in. This is probably going to be a longer episode. Just like fair warning, y'all. We have done our <coughs> best to try and narrow things down. But I also want to like we both wanted to make sure that we also give it like the space that we could that goes towards like kind of being enough, but still really not because these are very big topics. But my main source today um and sorry again before i jump in this is very different than my normal segment topics i'm not talking about like one specific plant but my main source today is a fantastic book it's called ashkenazi herbalism rediscovering the herbal traditions of eastern european jews by dietrich cohen and adam siegel and i like cannot recommend this book enough for like anyone of jewish ancestry or people with eastern european roots you know the topic for me really came about like when we were doing our planning session i was like oh yes ashkenazi herbalism because i kept seeing this book in like herb shops and it's also been in like my recommended reads section on like hoopla and my kindle app because guys very hot tip if you haven't done it like almost every public library you can get a digital library card and get access to like free ebooks and audiobooks get on it it's a great way Love to like that. 
Yeah, it's a really, really great way to get like lots of free resources and they use like Hoopla is the one I use the most, but they also have them that come through like the Kindle app. So like, anyway, support should, your local should, library. Okay, should, here, here's my question. Here's my question. Should I get a new Kindle? I mean, how nice, it's like, it depends on your cell phone, I feel like, because my cell phone is now like, I, I mean, I've just got the 10. It's like the iPhone X. It's not like a brand new one, but my cell phone is decent enough that I can just use the Kindle app. And for uh, me, that's, that's, that's sufficient. That's fair. I mean, I read a lot of articles and stuff on my phone anyway. I did kind of like having the Kindle though, where it was like, um, where it looked like paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're into that, then like Kindles you are could, great. Because you could read it by candlelight and um, that's kind of lit. Yeah. Literally by fire. Yeah, uh, but okay, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. Anyway, I'm we so have sorry. to keep going. So I just, I'd like to kind of like talk a little bit about like the context of why I was interested in this is like, so my partner, Eric, has Ashkenazi ancestry on their mother's side. Like anyone who knows, knows that like Jewish ancestry actually does travel down the matrilineal side of things, which is really interesting. Like their mother's maiden name is Schwartz. Uh, so they're from like, Russia. And I also discovered doing like some ancestry. Y'all can probably hear Willow jumping around. Ignore that. Um, I also have like a branch of Ashkenazi like ancestry in my lineage. So again, not to like claim any Hebrew heritage or anything, but like this is why this topic in particular, when I kept seeing this book, I was really interested in it because I was like, oh, this is something that like kind of speaks to a little bit of like my partner's life as well as you know some like ancient ancestors of mine and i also wanted to say that like given the current geopolitical climate i think talking about jewish people with eastern european ancestry is like timely and important because a lot of like the pale is in like modern day ukraine but we also know that like not everyone who practices magic considers themselves a witch like we do but there is no mistaking the fact that magic has an awful lot to do with like folk medicine practices of the Ashkenazim. So this is also like a really interesting way to kind of like reclaim an ethnobotanical lineage because so, mo so much of like the Ashkenazim's culture was absolutely decimated between 1942 and 1945 during fucking World War II because like, the pale was in places like the Ukraine and Poland, and we all know what happened to the Jewish diaspora living there. And the reason that this book, the Ashkenazi herbalism book was written to begin with is because the author was like studying herbalism. And one of the things that they always tell you when you're in like herbalism studies is like, look at your ancestry, like look at the herbal practices of your lineage. And she just wasn't able to find information. And of course, she's also a librarian. And so what do librarians do? They solve mysteries. So which, she... which I yeah, when you, we were texting about this, I was like, I love that a librarian yeah. was just like, okay, there's no information on this. Let me find it. Let me find it. Let me make it a librarian herbalist. So now let's talk about Ashkenazim. So at the end of the first millennium, a wave of diaspora Jews settled along the Rhine River, which is in what is now Germany. And over the following centuries, they migrated from like the Rhine Basin eastward 
into places like present day Poland, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Czechia, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Moldova. And today we call their descendants Ashkenazi Jews or Ashkenazim. And throughout their lives in this part of the world, there was like obviously a lot of war and shifting borders. Anyone who took history at any point knows about the Balkan powder keg. Um, and of course, a lot of like anti-Semitism. And so the majority of the Jewish people in this region were eventually forced into this like restricted area called the Pale of Set Settlement or the Pale, which is what I'll refer to it as moving forward within the Russian empire. And so in this zone, some Jews of course settled in larger cities, but others founded these like small market towns that were called shtetls. And because they were forced into this region, there were a lot of like limitations on their daily life. But at the same time, because they were like so concentrated and there were all of these like legal restrictions on them, they also forged like really intimate connections and bonds with like the non-Jewish communities who lived alongside them. And so there's so much cultural exchange here between like Jewish, Slavic, and Germanic peoples, which is especially important when we talk about their herbal traditions. Like there's really no other field of study where cooperation between like Jews and non-Jews is as apparent as it is like in the medical field, right? Like, so when someone gets sick, especially if they're like not elite with a lot of money, they don't really care if the doctor tending to them is Jewish or not. Like they only care that they're gonna get the help that they need. And it's also important to note that especially in this region, like healing powers were so closely associated with like the Jewish religion that actually a lot of the famous rabbis throughout the pale were also physicians. And the healers that were most successful and well-respected well in the pale were the Baalei Shem, or iterant Kabbalists, talking about Kabbalah, um, who dispensed herbal remedies like right alongside things like amulets or incantations. And so, you know, we have to kind of like remember that at the time, like a lot of illness was attributed to things like demonic possession and like all of the various ways like demons and spirits could go after you. Uh, the evil eye. The evil eye was something that they were uh, particularly spooked by, the Jews of the Pale, but also things like uh, dibbocks, which are like inappropriately buried bodies that uh, end up being super haunting and like attacking people, and Lilith at the time. We'll talk about Lilith later. Um, so the people here, though, like the, uh, the Balei Shem, they relied on medical literature um, that was often like written by their people. So it's the Segalot Verufuat, um, these remedy books, as well as things like practical Kabbalah guidebooks that would incorporate like Jewish tradition alongside like Slavic superstitions and healing practices. And so these like practicals that they would carry were most often like literally like little pocket sized books under 150 pages that would include things like recipes for herbal remedies, as well as like charms, incantations, amulets, things like that. And to market their own services, like the Balei Shem would sometimes like write their own remedy books and like sell them as far and wide as possible, kind of as like, it's like one part DIY helping yourself, but another part like advertising their services as healers. So of course, the Enlightenment took Europe by storm and Eastern Europe was no exception. And the Balei Shem were eventually replaced by trained physicians and feldshers. And so feldshers were essentially like military barber surgeons that were trained in like shaving, bathing, but also things like 
setting fractures, bloodletting, and treating wounds. Like barber surgeon, think Sweeney Todd. Like oh yeah, it was a thing. Like the person that would cut your hair would also be the person applying the leeches. Uh, they're they're kind of like almost like paramedics. Like they're kind of like traveling people. Um, because at this point, like Europe is moving into this era of like constant war, right? So like large standing armies are the norm. And so felchers were never in short supply, but they weren't just battlefield surgeons, right? They're also dispensing like herbal treatments, administering herbal fumigations was also a really prominent practice at the time, burning things like orange peel, juniper, which we now know does actually decrease uh, bacterial, uh, the bacterial presence in the air. So after like 1795, most Ashkenazi Jews become official Russian subjects, but the way that they were treated actually varied a lot between rulers. So Ashkenazi Feldshers had like a lot of politics to navigate. And because of the medical care, um, because the medical care that was provided in the pale came from Feldshers, these people actually had like a really high standing in the community. They were considered like folk physicians and they were actually preferred often by their Ashkenazi community members over even like trained physicians because they had like very close knit ties to the community. Their Jewish like religious practices were also a really important part of their healing work. And because the Felchers like regularly spoke with and worked alongside other folk healers, a variety of herbal remedies were also like part of their repertoire. And they'd commonly refer to the same like remedy books we talked about earlier when working with their patients. But they'd also use the Talmud as a resource um, because the Talmud actually includes more than a hundred plants and various like prescriptions and remedies and recipes that you can find in there. Uh, also, pharmacies were super, super important as far as like herbal medicine is concerned. And a large number of students in the Russian pharmacy schools were Ashkenazim. Uh, Ukraine was actually uh, also a center for herb cultivation and export in the Russian Empire. And in the late 1800s, it also, because of that, became a key area for pharmaceutical production. Uh, unfortunately, because anti-Semitism has always been real, it was against the law in some areas of Russia for Jews to dispense medicine. So if they were able to, some people would actually travel to buy their medicines in places that allowed Jewish-run pharmacies. And in interwar Poland, a lot of Jewish pharmacists weren't able to dispense prescriptions. So instead, they'd sometimes sell their own like herbal formulas and remedies that were like passed on through their family. And a lot of those were in productions for like over a century. So by 1917, the financial cost of the First World War put like a huge strain on Russia and medications were scarce. So they actually started this really interesting campaign to gather large amounts of medicinal herbs, things like Jimson weed, AKA uh, moonflower, Deuterostromonium, uh, and valerian root, and all sorts of other plants. And a lot of those were collected from areas in the pale. They'd actually be sending out like teachers and like school age students to like do the collecting at this point. And during this time, research institutions started conducting extensive studies about community herbalism practices. 
Unfortunately, a lot of that research isn't accessible, but some of it was shared in English, uh, including a study that focused on traditional healers in the Ukraine. And so in 1912 to 1914, Ansky ethnographic expeditions began an attempt to document the disappearing folk traditions of the Pales Ashkenazim. Although sadly, a lot of that information isn't actually accessible to researchers. But Ansky is a pseudonym for the Russian Jewish ethnographer, journalist, and playwright Shalom Zanvi Rapoport. And he organized the first comprehensive ethnographic study of the Ashkenazim of the Pale. He actually had planned two separate tours, but before he could go back for the second tour, World War I broke out and like the trip was completely abandoned. And we all know that after World War II, a lot of the Jews in the area had unfortunately either been murdered or had fled. So the second trip was supposed to have involved having as many residents as possible fill out a questionnaire. But the questionnaire itself does still provide us with a little bit of insight. So for example, one of the questions was like, is it a tradition that when a midwife dies, all of the children she brought into the world accompany the funeral procession holding candles? Which that question like gives us the answer as well. And how sweet is that? Like the idea that a midwife passes away and then all the kids whose births she oversaw like follow the funeral procession, like, how sweet, like be still my cold dead heart. I, oh my God, yeah. Yeah, uh, this expedition though, like the first one also confirmed that the Opshaprekrin, and I'm really sorry if I'm, I'm butchering that, Opshaprekrin uh, survived and practiced all the way into the 12th century. And so these were actually women healers who passed their wisdom on through oral tradition that was like deeply shrouded in secrecy. And their healing methods varied from like the magical religious with like Kabbalah to like herbalism. And they also included incantations spoken in Yiddish, Slavish dialects and Tatar. And the prayers and spells, spells there actually had so much in common with like neighboring Eastern uh, neighborhoods that like it was it's really impossible to tell like to tell like where they first started. And like this is just one more example of like the really interesting melting pot that we get in the pale. But there have been some fragments in research and studies like in the decades since World War Two that have given us a very small glimpse into the world of like folk medicine in the pale. But I wanted to like close with this like really great quote from a Florida researcher uh, last name Rubin that was included in this book. Uh, botanical medicine has been one small vehicle for carrying the function of culture to provide continuity with the past through family and community relationships. For Jewish people, often struggling against adverse forces, these common and continuous herbal practices helped maintain cohesive identity. Medicinal plants are richly expressive as vehicles for these needs, serving as agents of healing and hope, reflecting our ties to the earth and showing continuous regrowth with the seasonal cycles. Like, how pretty is that? I do love that. Yeah. Right? Um, so... The book also includes a really great Materia Medica that features 26 herbs that we know were used by Ashkenazim healers. And I just, I can't recommend it enough. Like, I know this was a slightly different topic for me today, like very history heavy, but it also, I think, really illustrates how privileged some of us are to have very, like, detailed lineages with, like, the botanical practices and, like, the magical and spiritual practices of our ancestors because for Eastern European Jewish people, almost all of that was destroyed. Like this book is really pulled together from like 
pieces of like Russian research and like photos that are showing up in like, you know, pre-Holocaust exhibitions. Like there's so much importance in like understanding your ancestors and being able to like tap into that like wealth of knowledge. So I just, I can't recommend this book enough. I think it's a really, really great read, honestly, for anyone, but especially if you have like Jewish or Eastern European ancestry, because again, there was so much exchange between like other Eastern European communities and the Jewish communities here that like, it's really impossible to tell who started what, so. Well, and and kind of to that point as well, I think it's interesting to note that like the Ashkenazi Sort of co- I don't want to call it a costume, but like the way that they dress, their style of dress yeah. is uh, based on like 13th century Eastern European noblemen. Yeah, it's all like, it, because they were there in the region for so long up until World War II, like literally we're talking about like at the end of the very first millennium, that's when like the diaspora Jews settled in Germany. And from that point on, they're just migrating eastward until they settle in the pale. Like that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And these herbal practices, like even though with the enlightenment, they would try to stamp it out. Like the folk practices always stayed really prominent because this was an area that didn't have a lot of wealth. They were often under the foot of the rule. But I I did also just want to like plug that one of the most important thing that like trained Jewish physicians did was translating Middle Eastern medical literature into European languages, because I don't know that everyone realizes that the Middle East was literally like a thousand years ahead of Europe with medical work. Like they opened the first hospital in the year 800 and by the year 1000 had like five like teaching hospitals and they were like cleaning shit with like rose water and vinegar and like understanding hygiene while like in Europe they were still just like illness is a blight from God like good luck no like did not believe in bathing yeah so the Middle East really was like way ahead of Europe and that was one of the great things that like Jewish trained physicians did was they started translating the works that were in like Arabic and stuff into European languages of course because like Jewish people would have a much greater understanding of Middle Eastern languages. Of course, I, I mean, you know, um, all of those, all of those languages are are a language family too. It's a yeah. Aramaic, the Aramaic language family. Yeah, Thank all you of the Aramaic. Much. And there's, there's also in this book, there's so much interesting stuff on like the politics of translation, which I really love too. Like really them trying to get away from like Yiddish translations, but still ending up having to print stuff in Yiddish. So. Anyway, the book is like really fantastic. And again, I know this is like different for me, but I was really excited to talk about it. So I hope you all enjoyed it. I I thought it was great. And I think think it kind of goes with the episodes. We're kind of doing like, you know, kind of like Jewish magic this week. Yeah, yeah. It's like our like tipping our hat to it because again, we're like, neither of us are claiming Hebrew heritage or anything, but we are very interested. I actually, I, I am a little bit. I am a little bit. Well, I will, it's in my, it's in my segment. It's in my segment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. You can you can get into it. So anyway, that's that. I will let Nick take over now. Yeah. So this week, I get to talk about something that has acquired some notoriety in recent years, and honestly, sometimes not in the most flattering way. Jewish mysticism and 
in order to really flesh out this topic, I thought it might be appropriate to talk a little bit about my family history, which is basically to say that I do myself have some Hebrew roots uh, on the family tree, because my grandma's family, last name Frank, for anyone uh, interested, um, was actually at some point in history, a Jewish family. Um, and I think one thing that not a lot of people know is that there actually are a lot of Jewish people in Louisiana to this day because a lot of Jewish people moved to New Orleans initially because France had very liberal attitudes towards Judaism. I mean, compared to the rest of Europe. Yeah, comparatively. Comparatively, comparatively. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of Jewish people ended up in New Orleans at some point, and that's kind of how that happened, but uh, converted one million years ago. So, like, never religiously Jewish um, as far as far back as we, we, we can kind of tell, but, I mean... But at some point, there there is a, a Jewish ancestor and and a Jewish name and the the odd latka. Uh, oh my god, of, latkas are so good though. They re they really are. If, so. if anyone ever ends up in LA, like let me know because I've got some hot wrecks for really good Jewish delis. Like, oh my god, oh, if you, outside of New York, like on the West Coast, Los Angeles really does like have a pretty good like Jewish deli game. And um, yeah, we should definitely, we should do that when I'm there this summer um, because that actually sounds really good. But anyway, we're also hella French, which does kind of play into the whole story as well because a lot of, of Kabbalah did come out of France ultimately. Um, so, you know, put a pen in that until later on. But another thing I wanted to say at the top of the segment is that while I think a lot of these traditions are cool and interesting to me as a person, because, um, you know, there has always kind of been that question of like, like, what is Jewish culture? Since, you know, ultimately at some point, I probably have some Jewish relatives out there. I do feel it's important to get at least a little bit political with it. Um, like, I think appreciating certain aspects of Jewish culture can really bring us into a place of better understanding, especially in these times when there's like nearly unprecedented anti-Semitism in the world. But, and there is a caveat, in no way does like appreciating Jewish culture mean that I endorse or support the current like Zionist regime in, in Israel, the country. Yeah, I mean, I think if you wanna get into something very political the involvement of the united states with the founding of israel and propping up of the israeli government first of all with very creepy evangelical end times like loving folks who like yeah 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 really think that's important but also like the way that american government has kind of like capitalized on that like larger cultural like rooting for the end times to basically keep a fucking foothold in the middle east is really gross and it's, like less it's really gross it's not about helping jewish people have a place it's about like consolidating power yeah um and basically you know like before anyone like writes in being like you know if you love this stuff so much you must be a zionist absolutely not so it's basically like jewish people and culture cool interesting good 
Israel, the modern country, insane, scary, very disagreeable. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of Jewish people that I know personally in Los Angeles, it, like supporting Jewish people and not supporting Israel is not weird and out there. There are plenty yeah. of people that are in I th- this camp. I think I think there's this. It's it's almost like it kind of mimics evangelical Christianity. This like the the Zionist aspect of it, and it's like uh 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 uh. Y'all yeah. are literally just as crazy as like the the end time Christians. Yeah, if you're like very pro Ukraine but not pro Palestine, you might be a racist. <laughs> well, I mean, we shouldn't even we should not even talk about that because I have to talk about the Kabbalah. Yeah, Nick has to talk about the Kabbalah. So if anyone wants to have political convos, y'all know how to reach us. Y'all know how to reach us. Um, But okay, so Jewish mysticism is often used interchangeably with the Kabbalah. But since we're talking about the Ashkenazim, there are different branches and sects of which uh, Ashkenazi Judaism is considered a form of Jewish mysticism. And actually, I think uh, a key difference between the two that I want to discuss up top here is that the Ashkenazim are trying to like live out a, a lot of the tenets that are laid out in the uh the Zohar the Zohan yeah and you have to also remember again just like on the Ashkenazim side that so much also like Slavic mysticism gets wrapped uh-huh. into that in a way that is like different than other sects of Judaism in a way that I think is fascinating but i would say kabbalah is the most popular version of this mystical side of judaism and that's why people you know like will often just refer to kabbalah as like the whole thing absolutely not true though absolutely not true yeah um thanks madonna yeah but yeah it's like really thanks to like celebrity endorsement and hijacking by woo cults and yes if you guys didn't if you guys thought we were not going to be talking about the modern mystery school in this episode then you're sorely mistaken um so the thing is to me that celebrity co-opting of kabbalah and like the modern mystery school co-opting kabbalah uh, are one and the same actually because like whether you're a celebrity looking for a trendy new spirituality or like a batshit crazy cult looking to add an exotic and ancient flavor to your program, like stripping Kabbalah of its Jewish roots and rebranding it as like a secular practice that's for everyone isn't just stealing, it's also cultural appropriation, which is a no-no. Absolutely not. Gross. It's gross. Um, And I would say it's just as disrespectful disrespectful as christian kabbalah which is absolutely yucky yeah i wanted to like also plug there's this great instagram called jew witches and she does like so much awesome research in her blog too talking about like anti-semitic practices and she also mentioned like christian satyrs being a new thing and it's like that is absolutely not okay but like if you want a good like jewish resource jew witches on Instagram and her blog is like super informative and really interesting. And also I think helps has helped me unpack some of the things that were anti-Semitic that I did that I wasn't aware of, which is also very important. Well, and I do find it funny that 
people want to simultaneously be anti-Semitic, but also like co-opt things that they like from Judaism. Um, but like nobody is champing at the bit to like start wearing black in public or like growing out a, a curly forelock or stop eating shrimp or like fuck through a sheet if you're very, very orthodox or even getting, you know, you're not trying to get a circumcision at home from a priest. Um, all of which to say, like you cannot just cherry pick the things that you like from another religion and then throw everything else away, which is why celebrity Kabbalah is so bad. Yeah, uh, and like, I'm, I will, I'm gonna let you finish. I'm Kanyeing <laughs> you, but I, I took a lot of religious studies classes. And like, one of the other things that I just have to say is I think it's fucking disgusting how many like modern Christians are obsessed with Judaism and cherry picking things that they're interested in from the old Testament. Because the thing is, if you're a Christian, you believe in like the new covenant with Jesus, which is why you don't have to follow all of the other Jewish practices. And so picking and choosing like when you want to act Jewish versus Christian is like so, so, so inappropriate. It's like you can't be a Christian and also then like get to pick and choose what cool Jewish stuff you want to do. Like that's right. the foundation of your religion is a new covenant with God that like overwrites everything else Jewish. So you cannot have your cake and eat it too. And it's kind of the same thing where it's like a lot of the stuff about being gay in the Bible is is part of like Leviticus, which is like this moral code, um, which you have to follow, which does include like being kosher and like the whole blended fabrics thing, cloven hoof. So uh, one thing I think is funny, um, just before we dive back in uh, is that it has been determined by at least one rabbi that you can eat the back half of a giraffe, but not the front half because they have cloven hooves in the front and regular horse hooves in the back. So, well, these are the answers to the questions we've all been wondering, but yeah, I just think it's, I, I, I think it's impossible for us to like talk about Judaism in America without at least like, yeah not no, into like the problems of evangelicals and like it's it's really popular with like modern day bro christians who are trying to like reclaim christianity as something cool by getting back into the jewish roots and it's like okay well you could go through the conversion process and become jewish which is like very valid but you can't be a christian and then just like pick and choose what you think is important out of the torah right it's not for you. It's not yeah, for you. Yeah, it's not yours. It's confusing because they include it in the Bible. Yeah. But then the, the first thing they say in the New Testament is that you don't have you don't have to do any of that. Anymore. The whole point of Christianity is the new covenant. Anyway, I have Anyhow, a lot of like really but, great books on the the works of Paul if you'll ever want to talk about the New Testament. But kind of but kind of speaking on that too, like and talking about the modern mystery school, they have this whole thing where it's the the lineage of King Solomon, which they intentionally misspell. Um, and basically they're saying that they are like the recipients of 
this ancient Kabbalic knowledge. Uh, right. ultimate, ultimate, and I'm like, yes, the recipient of the ancient Kabbalic wisdom was a Scandinavian man from Iceland. Obviously. Obviously. The way that they spell Solomon, like, phonetically sounds like the way my Nana says Salmon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Salomon. Salomon? (laughs) King Salomon. The the big old kingfish. (laughs) Right. Um, But yeah, it really, but when, but when, a, a thing like that, which also relies heavily on stealing like pagan iconography, like they wear pentacles, they encourage you to dress witchy and like be witchy, but like it's all for show. It's really all for show. It's all it's all to make it seem more mystical and spiritual than it actually is. And it's really it's a hodgepodge at that. And it's it's so gross. Um but what I will say that I think is cool, just to kind of pivot here, uh, uh, and in the larger context of Judaism, is that a part of the regular Jewish education includes like studying the Torah and the Talmud and the other holy texts and interpreting for yourself what it means and sort of engaging in these philosophical debates, which are like meant to allow each individual to find their own path and their own relationship with the quote-unquote almighty the divine you know like Yahweh Jehovah whoever um and which is actually I think very different from the shut up and listen approach that Christianity has taken um and Christianity being so like faith 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 Whereas in Judaism, like you do talk about it, like you're supposed to like bring your questions to the table and have a lively philosophical debate. Yeah, which is so interesting when I think about the questions that, you know, Eric and I have talked about this as people who grew up in the church is like when you bring questions, sometimes you you almost are kind of seen as like dirty and like your faith is bad if you have questions, which is like. I I do find that I agree. I think that's one of the most interesting things about like Judaism in general is like that there is this space for being a fucking person. Right, right, right. And they would probably even say, well, you should be a rabbi. If you're really curious. Yeah, it's like, you know, keep studying then, kid. Go studying, for it. You know, yeah. figure it out. And figure it out is exactly like what the whole point of Kabbalah is because um that like there is this space there's room for things like the Kabbalah and Hasidism and it's like under the larger umbrella of Judaism and there's even like some Jewish scholars who believe that it's these are good things because it encourages this debate like this discussion of what are the core beliefs like what do we believe and you know, it's it's kind of like a feedback loop. So it like improves this like system of education, um, which I think just like the style of like a Jewish education is very, very interesting compared to like how other religions would just have you like memorize, memorize, memorize. You're supposed to talk about it. Yeah, the whole John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave yeah, his yeah, only begotten yeah. son. Yeah, it's like that are still in your brain if you ever went to fucking Bible camp. Right. Um, but 
so it it's it they they encouraged this discussion but they also like didn't take the their mystical branches and like cannibalize them which i do find pretty unique among like other major organized religions so like if you look at the catholic church it has stolen so much of their holidays and like the theater of their rituals direct like they're so pagan like directly from european paganism to kind of like appeal to the audience to like bring in the flock right catholic mass is like ritual magic it absolutely is it's absolutely is it's like you're wearing black you're burning incense you're burning candles you've got these like big scary gothic cathedrals these very like like very specific incantations that get said a certain number of times like latin in latin which everyone knows is the devil's favorite language truly 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 (laughs) um but but also so it's like they did they didn't cannibalize their their local mysticism they they kind of like allowed the space for it to be separate but you know kind of equal kind of like taoism and buddhism right where it's like it's like taoism buddhism confucianism where it's like they coexist they're not they're not fighting each other okay so there's room for for this kind of thing in judaism but also like just kind of back to the catholic thing like they would absorb what they wanted and then destroy everything else which not only wipes out like raw information and history even uh but it's just so transparent that it kind of breaks the fourth wall and takes you out of any otherwise like mystical experience that you would have because it's like you're really just putting on a show right now um all of which to say that Kabbalah and Hasidism are separate from Judaism, but also still very much part of like an ongoing conversation within Judaism about like holiness and spirituality and personal relationships with the divine. And I would say, you know, you guys, if you're anything like me, you've probably heard about Kabbalah in the Wu sphere, or more likely from like Entertainment Tonight during their obsession with like Madonna and all the other Hollywood cabalists it's like ooh, who's wearing the little red bracelet this week you know yeah but also like i'm so sorry to interrupt but like what the fuck is madonna's accent because she's not british anyway she's not she's not british she's not british she's not british (laughs) she's like i lived in england for a long time now so it's like "Mm, how long do you have to live there though to pick up the accent it's like that's not how it works you're not a little kid like if a little kid moves to another country they pick up the accent yeah it's like i definitely could understand you saying things like chuffed because i sure britishism slip into my i called sneakers trainers the other day because i watch a lot of bbc but like (laughs) i'm not speaking in a british accent anyway no 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 um but so but you've probably like wondered what the fuck even is Kabbalah? So to start with, it has been around since at least the first century in some form or another, though it is self-described as the world's oldest religion predating any organized religion. Self-described, self-described, which, you know, whatever. I think that's a pretty bold claim. I mean, I am the self-described queen of the world. Self-described. Self-described, I mean, but. Um, 
but but so basically we can look at it like this so judaism is like the codified official rule books version of the faith and god wants you to do these things he wants you to not do these things um this is how you can be good end of story you know um smiting 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 fun stuff and but famously people always have additional questions no matter how kind of thick the rule book is so we end up with kabbalah the mystical side of judaism which did have a huge revival in the 13th century jewish communities of france and spain and actually around the time kabbalah got big in france and spain Hasidism was taking hold in the Ukraine or, or kind of coming together, which is why, like, if you look at the Polish costumes and the Ukrainian costumes of, like, the noblemen, like, the way Hasidic Jews dress to this day looks like a 13th century nobleman from, like, around Poland or the, or the Ukraine right now. Uh, yeah, would, I mean. At that time walk around the Fairfax district where I live on a Saturday and like it's really really fascinating so so for anyone that doesn't know a, a Hasidic Jewish man is very is like very very easy to spot because they they have a lot of times like a fur hat um and they they they're they have the um the curly forelocks in front of their ears and they wear those fur hats even when it's like 95 degrees in los angeles in the summer yeah um but also you know it's like it's like hats 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 you have to wear black um so like there those are but you know it's like that there, there's a lot of crossover with that and like orthodox judaism as well so um it's not just about hats but it's like the fur it's the furry hat um and apparently there's a lot of beautiful embroidery in uh, Hasidic costume, but um, that's very much a side note, but I do love clothes, so. Um, but basically what the Kabbalah is, um, what, what the Kabbalah explores uh, is what exactly is God? You keep saying that, but like, how does it all work? And B, how do I interact with an infinite and unknowable force? Um, and the answer to the second question is obviously magic, which is why people probably think it's cool because they, they're like, oh, and then you do magic. Um, and people love to just like steal anything that they think is gonna like help them personally. Um, but the answer to the first question is actually kind of like the meat, the, the meat and potatoes of the Kabbalah. You know, it's like, this is the part where you can't have one without the other, though. So the Kabbalah contains this highly codified and very complicated explanation about like what God is and like what man's lineage from God is. And um, you you have this the Godhead, which is this infinite and unknowable sort of cosmic singularity, which is sort of the everywhere and nowhere, et cetera, et cetera, kind of quantum energy in the universe, right? Um, 
And then you have like these 10 sephirots, which is like the map of creation and like each point being an emanation of the divine. Uh, so one of them is the, is the Godhead uh, itself. Um, and then you have like divine masculine, divine feminine, like kindness. Um, and this is also kind of seen as like a way to know how to be more directly in contact with the divine. And so through things like charitable acts, like through things like even kind of like dressing modestly and like, not to say that that's good. I'm just saying like the, the idea kind of being that like you, you do these things so you can be more focused on your like relationship with God or whatever. And like you, uh, you'll kind of like build up this energy because you're like more and more and more connected to these other points, these other sephirots. Because one of the points is like you as a person basically and like your personal relationship with God. Um, and of course I'm not like doing the Hebrew because I just know that I would absolutely fuck it up. And if you're interested in this, like look at the research or do your own research because I'm not gonna sit here and like hack phlegm at you and pretend I'm speaking Hebrew. Um, I think that would be disrespectful but as you know. Um, but it's also things like meditation. So it kind of outlines as like a, a thing that people should do is like this contemplative. So there's like these three aims. It's like the um, like the divine, the contemplative, uh, and then magic. Like, uh, so you have to get into this contemplative state to like get in touch with the divine, um, which is like, and you have to like think about what you're doing and why it's good or not good. Like you have to take this time to do it and all of that to say is that so much of what Kabbalah is is this granular explanation of like what God is and how it works and like where you can fit in to this like bigger structure and also kind of like with the with the Sephiroth as well so there's like four worlds like you know like heaven hell earth purgatory whatever whatever you want to see it as the levels of creation and that's like our universe right and there's the 10 Sephiroths in our universe but then there's also in each of the four worlds like four worlds in and of themselves with their you know so it's like an infinite um the the infinite expanse of creation or whatever um so it's like worlds and worlds and worlds worldception even um but then there's magic so like it's the kabbalah it's like what is god how can i interact with god like what are the holy emanations of god and then like there's the bit at the end where it's like and then you can do magic um the thing is the thing is it's like there's rules and a really, really super important one is that you should be an old man to practice it. Um, and so you kind of have to like spend your life studying this stuff and like memorizing it. It 
famously was an oral tradition before the Zohar was written. Um, the point being that you don't just like do magic if you're raising a family because magic is chaotic and you've got better things to do right now, which is actually like very good advice. Um, and the idea though, is that you, you're studying, 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 memorizing, like learning, learning, learning. And then when you are ready, you, you kind of like become this like holy person even. And then you can like start manifesting your own godly emanations, AKA doing magic. And like, there's also this whole thing in the Zohar where it's like, you know, just like all of these demons and spirits and like, you know, kind of like all of these specifics. Yeah, Lilith is one of the, one of the demonesses, shadowy figures in the when, Zohar. Yeah, when it's like King Solomon's list of demons, which all yeah. have like crazy, crazy names. Um, like crazy, like Assyrian sounding names too. But then one of them is called Amy. I love that. Like, Amy. you know what I, you know what I mean? They're all like Beelzebub and... And Lilith and Lilu and... Yeah. there because there's male lily like lilies or lilies and liliths yeah. amy right i bet and then, amy fucks shit up uh, dude i bet amy does fuck shit up um but no but so traditionally though and i think that was kind of my surprise here where i was like oh madonna does kabbalah like i think Kristen stewart did kabbalah for a minute like Probably. you know like uh, you see all these you see all these actresses getting into it but then it's like actually you would have to be like a straight up old jewish dude yeah to to, to like do kabbalah um that's literally what what it says it's literally what it says and um i mean again we're it's cherry picking it's cherry picking but i do think it's funny just to just to kind of finish out here because again it's such a broad topic to kind of cover um but i do think it's kind of interesting to think about all of these like old jewish men who pick up witchcraft as like a retirement activity yeah that's a really like cool second act yeah 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 <laughs> um and then yeah qwp obviously if you're not if you're not a hebrew person this is not not for you yeah you don't get to just decide to like do jewish stuff for funsies because like judaism is also like a religion with a very strict like process for conversion yeah it's it's like not for the faint of heart and like you can convert and like honestly so much respect and power to people who do that because it's very difficult notoriously yeah. it's like hard and it's also like you have to often will have to like ask to be allowed to convert multiple times and stuff like they really make you like work for it so to me that also it's like it's just so disrespectful like judaism is not like christianity they're not doing recruitment events like you have to do a lot of work to get into it so it's like it's very much in a lot of ways a closed practice so right. and, and and i think that's that's the best way to think about it it's like 
I mean, they're again, you know, kind of talking about how like Hasidic Jews are trying to like live these like principles of kind of the Kabbalah where it's like, you want to kind of like live out these principles um, in real time. Uh, part of that is like be fruitful and multiply, which is why, you know, the average uh, Hasidic Jewish family in the United States has uh, eight children. Wow. Can you, ima can you imagine no. that's a lot of kids? I can't imagine uh, one kid, let alone right, eight. Right, 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 right. But, um, but so kind of speaking of it as a closed practice though, um, they don't want to convert people. You know, if anything, they want to like add to their numbers through um, birthing. Yeah. And different Jewish sects all have like different um, conversion, like yeah, of course, of and course, things of like course. that. And I, I do also just, it's like, obviously like we think Judaism is super fascinating. We also are very well aware that they have their own issues with like misogyny and homophobia and all sorts of like problems. Um, but most but they're not, but, but they're not evangelical. They're not evangelical. Is what we're saying. And, and it's a closed practice. Like you don't get to just decide to do this stuff. Like that's not okay. So before we transition into talking about Lilith, which is another listener request, like thanks Bridget. Um, how do people get in touch with us? If you want to make a listener request, if you have a topic you'd love to hear one of us cover. Well, you can hit us up you guys on Instagram at ones and Franz pod. Um, you can hit us uh, through email at gmail, um, pod at gmail.com. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash wantsandfranzpod wow. and not only get in contact with us, but also, you know, kind of help keep the pod going and get some cool bonus content. And actually, you... Uh, can see my hair, which I did something fun with, and I'm not even going to say what it is. Yeah, Nick's hair is great, and you won't know about it if you're not on the Patreon. You're not going to know about it on the if you're not on the Patreon. Um, but if you but, don't, if you don't have it to support us financially, which we totally understand, yeah. Nick and I have both been various types of broke and impoverished throughout our lives. Um, there's a really cool thing that's free that you can do where you can rate and review. Spotify lets you post ratings now. Any like review that you write on Apple Podcasts, that all really helps. Also just downloading the episode. It's like little things like that are free to do. And if you enjoy this podcast, which will continue to be free for everybody as long as we're making it, you know, show us a little love. Give us some support, you know? Um, but yeah, we also love to hear from you guys. So as I said, Lilith was a listener request. Thank you, Bridget, uh, through our Patreon. So, you know, yeah, we may or may not prioritize people that do things like this through the Patreon. Um, but <laughs> Lilith as a character has evolved and changed a lot throughout history so there's there's really quite a bit to get into here and nick you will be so happy to know that we're going to spend a good amount of time in mesopotamia oh thank god so, I, thought, I thought we were gonna squeak by there take a drink everyone <laughs> so initially lilith was actually like a demoness that appeared in a lot of different middle eastern cultures like she wasn't specific to judaism um, she also appears, though, in the book of Isaiah, in the Torah or the Old Testament, the Babylonian Talmud, 
And though she's depicted on incantation bowls from like ancient Iraq and Iran. So the alphabet of Ben Sirah, which is a medieval Jewish text, is like the first place that we see her described as like an individual, an Adam's first wife who disobeyed Adam and God and asserted herself as an equal. Um, Lilith also does show up in Kabbalah as the shadow side to God's feminine aspect. And with the first wave feminist movement in the 1960s, thanks to the feminist theologian Judith Plaskow, we see Lilith kind of evolve into the modern feminist icon that so many of us are now familiar with. But let's back it up a skosh. Let's like talk about historical Lilith, right? So the alphabet of Ben Sirah is where Lilith is first mentioned as an individual, but there was a category of demons called Liliths along with the male Lilies or Lilies, and they've existed for thousands of years. Like the Bible literally only mentions her once as a dweller in waste places. Uh, and that's in like the book of Isaiah. But Lilith as a seducer and slayer of children is a depiction we see all across ancient Babylonian religions. So these demons, the Liliths, were thought to be the spirits of young people who themselves died young. And so they were hungry for young victims. Like when I was talking about the pale, one of the fears about Lilith, like, as a demoness and as an individual is like in the empty spaces between towns, that's where they would be afraid that things like this would happen where like a Lilith would come out and like eat your children, right? So it's like a chupacabra in that way. It, it, it can be like a chupacabra. And in some stories though, they'd also like, they would slip into people's houses and take the place of husbands and wives because they were never able to like live old enough to get married in their time. Um, we also know though about the Liliths from Aramaic incantation bowls. And these were things that you'd find with like spiritual leaders, but also like everyday lay people. And they were from like Jewish, Mandian, Christian, and pagan communities. And these bowls were inscribed with incantations and they would often include like images of a bound Lilith. And the entire purpose of this bowl is to like exercise demons from the homes or even individual people. And in the text on the bowls, we see Liliths described as haunting people in dreams and like daytime visions. And one particular text described Liliths as demons who quote unquote, appear to human beings, to men in the likeness of women, and to women in the likeness of men, and they lie with all human beings at night and during the day. So, scandalous. We see here, like, the sexual aspect of Lilith, like, emerges very early on in her mythology, and the tie to reproduction there with sex kind of gets us to the whole, like, attacking kids angle, so another bull that they found says that Lilith destroys and kills and tears and strangles and eats boys and girls. I, you know, put that on my tombstone. Right? <laughs> um, there is also this like related individual demoness called Lamashtu who liked to eat newborn babies. And over the years, like Lamashtu and the Liliths are kind of merged into one evil woman who seduces men and women and attacks kids. So we do see some references in rabbinic works and texts that are very much like along the lines of the Lilith figures from the incantation bowls, but these like really especially focus on the sexual dangers Lilith poses to men. And then enter the alphabet of Ben Sirah, right, where she becomes Adam's first wife. And the reason this like is included here is most likely to kind of explain the widespread custom of writing amulets and incantations against Lilith. So in this medieval text that's like 
kind of like hella misogynistic, honestly. But um, in this story, God creates Lilith from the earth after he creates Adam. And Lilith, as you'll note here, is created from the earth, not from one of Adam's ribs. So the fighting starts over who gets to be on top while they're fucking. And Lilith has a very fair argument that they're equals because they were both created from the earth. And then she pronounces God's name and flies away. So... You know, kind of kind of a badass exit, like a bit of a mic drop. Um, and Adam gets God to send three angels after her, but she refuses. And she tells the angels that she'd already slept with a great demon. Oh, and, that's hot. Right? I mean, it was pretty sexy. And then she tells the angels that she was created only to make newborn babies sick and that she has dominion over males until they're circumcised on the eighth day of their lives and over girls until the 12th day. And the angels are like, oh, fine, okay, but if we let you stay, you gotta leave babies alone if they have an amulet that has like our names or our likenesses on it. And she's like, cool, whatever, fuck off. And in the medieval Kabbalah, specifically, and this thing called the Treatise on the Left Emanation, she becomes the female consort of Samael which is the name that was given to the great demon she was supposed to have boned in the alphabet of Ben Sarah. So even to this day in like Kabbalah like texts and like some Jewish traditions and some other like traditions from like the Babylon area as well, you can still find like amulets and stuff in shops sometimes in the Middle East that'll have like the angels names and stuff on it for newborn babies to like protect them from Lilith. Um, and in early Midrashim, uh, Samael is said to have seduced the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and he had long been identified as the angel of death and the guardian angel of Rome. And we all know how the Jewish people in the Torah felt about Rome. So we know, though, that from ancient Mesopotamia, like up through the medieval Kabbalah, Lilith is like literally the embodiment of the dark side of human sexuality and family life. Like a lot of times with demons and demonesses, you see these like embodiments of human fears, right? And like she represents the fears about like infidelity, destroying marriages and the dangers of like childbearing and even raising kids. Because remember, like for most of this period, one of the leading causes of death for women was like having babies. So obviously there's a lot of fear there. But she also represents a woman that cannot be controlled by society, one who picks who she fucks and is kind of overall like a badass. Like she literally like flies off and tells angels what's what. So we come up to like 1972. We're time jumping a little bit here. And Lily Rivlin published an article on Lilith in the feminine the feminist magazine Miss, where she argues that Lilith is a feminist icon for like the modern contemporary women. And there's this like Jewish feminist magazine founded in 1976 that's actually called Lilith. And in the very first issue, an article lays out why Lilith is inspirational. They talk about like her fight for equality with Adam. And overall, this article also rejects the notion that she's a demon. I think it's actually a little too on the nose that the original article was written by someone called Lily. Right. Well, you know, I bet she had a bit of a personal uh, <laughs> vendetta there. And we've seen like a big rise in her popularity since then, right? With like Jewish feminists, neo-pagans, heyo. And even with like popular contemporary music, Lilith Fair, anyone? <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi. 
So there is this book I want to buy that I found called Who's Lilith? That's a collection of articles and poems about Lilith, right? So Lilith has really like evolved from like this demoness, like general type of demon all across the Middle East into like Adam's first wife and like really ancient Kabbalic traditions all the way up into now like a feminist icon. So you want to work with her in your magical practice. Why not? Why you not? Know? You can, of course, set up an altar space for her. Uh, I think surprising to no one, black and red are her favorite colors, which are like bad bitch colors, like always, like pop on a bright red lipstick and like you're there. Uh, she also loves mirrors and plants, the symbols of owls, hands, stars, dogs, snakes, bats, and dragons. Uh, and I realized when doing this research that uh, my altar is accidentally very Lilith, like very, very Lilith forward. Like I've got lots of plants and dragons and a big mirror. So I'm like, uh-oh. Hey. Shannon's, Shannon's in a Lilith cult now. Who knew? I didn't know. Um, and of course, like the ties between like female vanity and mirrors is where like the Lilith mirror associations come from. But because of that, like she's a great ally for mirror scrying, if that's something you're into. And she's also been referred to as a spirit of the wind. So you can work with Lilith when you're doing air magic or Nick enjoying those beautiful wildflower breezes in the spring. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you can think about working with her for things like smoke, uh, smoke scrying or cloud scrying, which wasn't something I had really like heard of as a magical practice, but I'm kind of obsessed with now. I fucking love that idea. Right? Cloud scrying. That is absolutely something Howell would do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, also, like burning incense is really basic air magic or storm magic like how cool would it be to do like cloud scrying with like thunderstorm clouds i i think i'm gonna have to do that when i'm in mexico yeah oh yeah um of course it we couldn't talk about magic with lilith without talking about sex magic so like put on red lingerie light some red candles and black candles get sexy with your partner but i think with her ties to independence I would also guess that Lilith is a really big fan of self-pleasure magic, too, if you get my drift. So, okay. right, put on uh, the first Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's album and get down to get down with yourself. So <laughs> she's also tied to the moon because lady power, high 28 day menstrual cycle. So you can invoke Lilith when doing lunar rituals. Um, there are also like several different astrological markers that are named for Lilith. So there's like an asteroid, a star, Earth's hypothetical second moon, and even a part of the moon's orbit. So you can find different types of Lilith placements. So if you have like a very magical astrology practice, I think um, finding where the different Lilith placements are in your chart and working with them would be a great way to incorporate her into your magic. And from everything I've read from like people who work with her, the consensus seems to be that she has very, very intense energy. So I think this is probably one that you'd want to get to know. Like you really want to like get to know her, make some offerings, really get like a sense of her and how she works with you before you start invoking her in rituals. Like, but the people who work with her are like very dedicated. So I'd say like, get after it if that's your jam, but like, 
you know, this isn't a Hestia moment. This is like, you kind of need a warm up, which makes sense. Like she's been kind of rocking around the world for thousands of years. Um, so my sources today were, there's this really great website. It's like jwa.org. It's the Jewish Women's Archive. And there's like an encyclopedia entry by Rebecca Lessis on Lilith, um, otherworldlyoracle.com. And of course, y'all know I was on Reddit. Of course, of course. Of course. Um, Okay, well, we're almost to the bitter end, which means it's time for the tarot scope. Um, so for this week, we drew Leo. And for Leo, I have drawn the Two of Swords. So, okay, Leo babes, I see that you're facing a difficult decision right now. And basically, you don't want to have to choose. And ultimately, not choosing is a choice because time marches on even for Leos. So the only way to truly be on top, like you know you want to be, is actually decide for yourself, even if it's two bad options. And so then at least it's the bad option that you picked. And I think it's like airplane food in that way and not to go like full Jerry Seinfeld with the tarot scope, but it's like, you'd be so mad if they told you that they're out of everything except the vegetarian entree, right? But when you pick it yourself between like the options and you're like, okay, I'm a health goddess. Uh, and this does look better than the chicken. Like maybe it's a cheesy lasagna even. And it's really like all about the mindset, you know, like it's still airplane food. It's bad, but you know, like maybe you are like, I picked this, I picked this for myself. So yeah, I choose my choice. I choose As my choice. A wonderful character in Sex in the City once said, team Charlotte, love her. Um, uh, but now also I have the, you want to be on top America's next top model <laughs> theme stuck in my head. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I thought that was appropriate for Leo. Oh, don't you? Don't so, you? Don't so you? appropriate. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of Leo placements. I <laughs> see too much of myself in that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, pick that vegetarian entree, uh, for your, for your own damn self is the advice here. Live your best life like you always do, Leo. Right. And um, I, that's it. So, um, you know, like, what do we say to all the red bracelet wearing fake Kabbalah bitches out there? <laughs> uh, to all the red bracelet fake Kabbalah bitches out there, we say, fuck you. But to our <laughs> wonderful demoness bitches, we say, blessed be demoness bitches. Blessed be you demoness bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. It was actually, it was interesting because it was like an episode of a podcast that's about different kinds of magic. And then the episode was about Kabbalah and he, he was like, you, you just have to laugh about trying to boil this one down. Um, and I was like, oh, oh, best of luck to me then. <laughs>